All right. Hi, everybody. It's RCFB Talk 183. It's Tuesday night. This is when we like to talk to you about whatever you want to talk about in college football. We'd love to have you join us in the conversation. You can just hit request in the bottom left of the Twitter app. And we'll talk about what you'd like to talk about. Lots of things going on again, even though it's the off season. I'm Bob Ekhayeri. Thanks for joining us. You know, a couple of quick topics. And I see John uh, wants to already join the conversation. I'll go ahead and let John up here. But some other just quick kind of news and notes. You know, in the last week, probably the biggest splash was what happened in the Tennessee and Virginia versus NCAA case. Now, it's still early on. I want to be clear about that. Some people are acting, I mean, it, well, to be clear, it is very triumphant for those who wanted to see the NCAA kind of put on its back. Because right now, a preliminary injunction by a judge, a U.S. District Judge, uh, District Judge Clifton Corker, the preliminary injunction basically keeps the NCAA from enforcing any and all rules prohibiting college athletes and recruits from negotiating compensation for NIL with collectives and boosters. Previously, the boosters and collectives weren't allowed to quite deal as directly. But now, because of this particular injunction, they can do whatever they want for the near future, and the NCAA has hinted that they are not necessarily interested in combating it. Now, I want to be clear, this isn't the final order, but it seems like the NCAA isn't going to put up much of a fight. There was a little bit of confusion because initially – the state of Virginia and the state of uh, Tennessee, who, of course, led the charge, had requested an emergency, uh, pardon me, temporary injunction um, of an emergency one, basically. And that did not quite meet the threshold. But as we can see, not long afterwards, they got the preliminary injunction. And uh, that has put the NCAA in quite a position. And I wanted to also add the ruling basically also keeps it so that let's say the NCAA somehow wins the way the decision was written, or at least the way, pardon me, the order was written, any athletes who are going to take, or, and I should say, and um, collectives who use this particular preliminary injunction to act and in a way that might violate NCAA rules would not be punished for doing so because it says, um, it, it basically keeps them from enforcing the, the, uh, the rule that would allow the NCAA to go back and punish those who were acting during this particular time that's coming up. So big news for a lot of athletes. Um, they're going to be able to negotiate freely. It's going to be interesting to see how NILs and their collectives decide to operate under this, but uh, a major time in that. Uh, another interesting move was, well, the last time we had this was in between two days of meetings regarding the future of the CFP. When we had last Tuesday, we already knew that the uh, the groups all agreed, the conferences all agreed to moving to a 5-plus-7 model for the 12-team playoff. The big news was, of course, the next day what was going to come out because with that strategic advisory group, or however you want to call it, between the Big Ten and SEC, it sounded like they were going to try and flex their muscle to try and get more auto automatic qualifiers. Nothing was finalized, but from what we understand, the group sounded at least somewhat amenable to potentially expanding the playoff after the next two years. Because for those who were unaware, the playoff that we have coming up, the 12-team playoff, was only agreed to for two years. So starting at the 2026 season, they would have to have a new plan in place. And there was a little bit of unsaid pressure. here because with the strategic alliance by the uh, I think rather than uh, they I don't believe they ever threatened to blow up the current situation but there was an implication that folks need to play a little bit of ball with them so they're trying to apparently get more automatic qualifiers the numbers have been between two and four depending on who you ask um, and the potential expansion of the playoff would then go from 12 teams to 14 or 16. I, in my mind, 16 makes more sense in that sense, because then with 14, it just seems a little, 12 at least made sense because you get those four top conference champs getting their automatic, you know, that they get to buy and they can, you know, they get to skip that first round. That, that made some sense. But with, you know, I'm not sure 14, but in a way that will let them theoretically bring in more automatic qualifiers. I, I have been swayed, I must say, by those who say, that's a little absurd. I mean, why not just assume that those teams are going to get in? Um, there might be some random year where the Big Ten or the SEC gets one less team in. Uh, I'm not sure you needed to, to guarantee it. But at the flip side, they have more teams than everybody else, and perhaps 
there is a, a concern over um, the amount of uh, amount of money and to make sure they get more of the pie. I mean, you get it. I mean, their conferences they they're they're looking out for for their teams. Um, Big Ten Commissioner Tom Petiti, uh did mention that uh, he was very, I guess, bullish about how that whole conversation went. So we'll see where that goes. It'll develop probably in the next few months. We'll hear more, maybe in the summertime. It'll be interesting to see where that goes, TBD. Another interesting move that may come is the college football early signing period is expected to move earlier in December to clear a little bit of space. It looks like they're hoping to put it basically right ahead of the title games, the conference title games in that first week of December. Interestingly, um, another side conversation that's going to be had, and this is a longer run, a macro thing, is whether or not conference title games are going to survive the next five, six years. Because with the playoffs, the way they're designed, there is the the possibility that they may not, um, they may not survive this because there may be a little less interest in them particularly if some teams don't take them as seriously. Because um, if you're going to the title game for, especially looking at the, the Big Ten and SEC, probably going into the playoff. Um, of course, the opportunity to skip uh, that first round might be something to be desired and, and make it. I mean, there's a lot of open questions with it and how that will go. Um, let's see, John, uh, I know you're up here. And then Ski Master Murphy, I'll let you on in a sec. Hey, man, how you doing tonight? Good. Lots of it's always amazing. I'm amazed every time I'm like, okay, this will be the week where it's quiet. I mean, I didn't even mention that UMass is now going to be in the Mac. That's a huge deal. You know, uh, I have to say there's a comment that's I stole the show. There was this user in Vodka Veritas. She's always a good commenter. Maction has just hit critical mass. That is that is so good. I, I'm like, you're, I'm mad I didn't come up with that one. You know, <laughs> when you hear a good joke, you're like, dang it. That's great wordplay. So that leaves one team that's arguably hosed in this new world. I thought it was going to be UMass and UConn. And it was funny. I was actually going to record a show um, with Shahan Jayaraja for a, a podcast we do. He's from CBS. And uh, I was going to say that the biggest losers were UConn and UMass. And then literally half an hour before we recorded, UMass announced they're joining the MAC. And the importance is with the, the guaranteed spot for a G5 champion – now suddenly a Mac champ really does have a credible opportunity to make it all the way to, I mean, at least into the playoff. I don't know how far they get into the playoff, but hey, you know, take that, take that win. It was already really hard. I mean, uh, only I think was it NIU made it all the way in the, uh, in, at least into a, a New Year's Six spot. And Western Michigan, pardon me, Western Michigan. But um, this suddenly UMass is not left out, but UConn, I don't know how they'd ever have, they'd have to get in as an at-large. And that's just not realistic. Notre Dame, okay, I think they actually, Notre Dame won all of this because some people have said, oh, they, they can't get that first round by. Well, if Notre Dame were to get into the playoff, they'd already, they don't have a conference championship game, so they'd get in with one less game anyway. So they kind of came in as a wash, but I mean, UMass now at least has something, but UConn, mm, I, I don't know, they're the, they're the odd person out right now. So we'll see if they join the Mac or if they join conference USA, apparently again, just to kind of finish that thought, uh, the Mac, there's a lot of rumors are talking to Western Kentucky to maybe join as well. Um, but that would be of course, poaching from one conference to another. So all that said, John, how are you? Sorry. Just, I just remembered I wanted to hit on that particular topic before I, before I got started. Yeah. That's what I wanted to talk about too, because I know that's, uh, we talked about literally UMass last week and talk about programs that might run back to the FCS level. I could be anything, but, I could be more wrong about something ever within a week's period of time. It's definitely that. Um, so it's really interesting UMass move over to the MAC. Uh, speaking of, like you said, uh, teams, additional teams possibly join the MAC. I know, you know, the rumors and reports have been looking like, you know, anywhere from one to three more additional teams that help even up numbers. How do you feel about a lineup of Western Kentucky, Middle Tennessee State, and UConn going over to uh, and just we get we get peak action? from this <laughs> that's interesting with middle tennessee i would never would have thought of them as, as a team that would have moved over there they were i remember when they joined the Sun Belt only because when the Sun Belt first sponsored football it was like 2001 they uh gosh and here's my age that i can remember reading an article like this right but they were thought to be the favorite because it was such a weird lineup the Sun Belt at the time i mean obviously they've climbed up to be a very respectable g5 
conference. But at the time, they were they were always kind of the misfit toys. It's like, okay, who who are these guys again? Um, and when people were trying to pick who was going to win that first inaugural season, and I think it was two thousand one, Mill Tennessee was the was the one everyone kind of thought, and then it ended up being North Texas in the most spe- <laughs> the most humorous way possible. For those who don't know, North Texas managed to lose all their non conference games. And but only lose one of their uh, Sun Belt games, but they they went to the first time I think anyone had ever seen a team go five and six and go into their bowl game um, because they had that one lock with the conference champ at the time. They only had one lock, and that was the New Orleans Bowl. But yeah, no Middle Tennessee and the MAC. I don't know. That would be an interesting one. I know they were. I've heard they're interested before. Um, yeah. And yeah. I, oh, go ahead. I, yeah. I, yeah, I mentioned because yeah, I mean, a couple of years ago when you know Conference USA was being raided by uh, uh, anyone and uh, and anything with a pulse, uh, conference wise, um, those were the two rumored teams to move over to MAC was Western Kentucky and uh, Middle Tennessee State. So I wonder, you you got to imagine considering the state of uh, Conference USA that both those teams would probably would be you know we'd try and pull out feelers and see what. What the Mac, uh, Mac, if maybe want to add them. Ge- geographically, it's not too crazy when you really look at it. Oh no, it isn't, and that's why exactly. I mean, the one thing the, the the Mac is is very geographically cogent to the extent. So is the Sun Belt. Conference USA is a little more oddball, and it's got to be awkward to be in Conference USA because you have one team that's just operating on a different level. And I mean, Liberty, yeah, I know they didn't do great in the Fiesta Bowl, but they throw a level of money at that program that is way beyond most other G5 teams. The problem is they, they have a lot of other baggage that, that has made them kind of not an not attractive team to the bigger conferences, but they spend money like one. And that's going to be really awkward when you're kind of one of the, uh, the G5s that isn't on that level and especially um, some of the others in that conference. So, yeah, that would be an interesting, that would be an interesting match. I want to let up Ski Mask Smurphy as well because it's been a minute since you've been up here um, talking. Another piece of news I also wanted to mention, Georgia State, of course, hired Del McGee uh, from Georgia. Big recruiter. That's going to be huge, I think, hire. That, that was an impressive one uh, for, for the Panthers. I mean, because seeing Sean Elliott uh, leave, that was kind of a disappointment. But I guess he never really did settle into Atlanta because his family never quite moved down from Columbia. Because, of course, he was at South Carolina and now has returned there. But uh, Ski Mask Smurphy, what's up? Hey, Bubba. How you doing? I'm good. It's How are you? It's been a while. I'm, I'm doing great. I'm doing great. I wanted to talk about, I mean, we also knew the five plus seven was going to happen with the 12 team playoff, but I don't think any of us saw like them thinking of a 14 playoff coming out. And oddly enough, I had the epiphany like working out of my head how it would work. Cause I was thinking about like, how does 14 work? But it, it'd be six buys and then the first, then the other 12. Wait, not 12. Crap. I don't know. It's, yeah, I don't know, it's I'm still trying to work it out. I think what the, the top two would get buys. Is that how it would work? The, uh, or I'm not sure. Wait, does that math work out? Um, I don't know. Yeah, that's why 16. Uh, at that point, I'm like, just go to 16. At that point, just go to 16. Then it makes sense. You know? But I think also, like, at what point would it be too many teams? Like it, like it breaks sort of like the structure of how college football was set up. How they went mm. from like there were no conference championship games. So like, okay, we're making conference championship games. So like, if it goes to sixteen, I feel like they might do away with conference championship games because then at that point it'll be a lot of teams will be like, yeah, I don't want to play the conference championship game because I'm looking good, and me losing it could potentially like put me on the outside. Yeah, I I agree. Well, and the other thing is the sixteen teams then because at least with the twelve teams you've incentivized the conference championship games because the top four. And almost here, it, I mean, maybe one in every ten years, it might not be one of the one of the the P four might not make it in, but it's going to be the P four champs all getting first round buys and then you know moving on. So I mean, that made sense. At least there's something there to potentially battle for. But yeah, sixteen. I do wonder if over the as the years pass, the conference title games become a little less important, particularly at the power level um, or however you want to call the P four right now. And yeah, no, I and. Frankly, the other factor is too, you know, if the money's still there, it may still go, keep going. So I don't know. It'll also be interesting to see how viewers treat it to be, to kind of think about that as well. I know some people have asked that about like, you know, talking about the, the basketball analogy, how many people necessarily pay attention to all the, the conference tournaments before the big dance. But yeah, um, that's a great question. And, and John, I see your hand up and we'll go back to Ski Max Murphy. 
Yeah, I, I know you were mentioning, and uh, Ski Master was mentioning too, just like the going away of conference championships. My biggest question, though, is if conferences are going to keep expanding, and it sounds like the SEC and, and Big Ten don't want to stop, I mean, without a championship game or without a winner of a conference, then is it, is it really even a conference anymore? I mean, it was, was kind of the point that there's no one that's really a that comes out as a winner. It just it just feels like it just feel yeah, it's, 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 I don't know, it just seems very strange to have something about a uh, some type of con- like championship winner from that particular conference. I don't know. It's just, it's very odd. Mm-hmm. Ski mask. What, what are your thoughts right now? Yeah, I was thinking. Just the only thing that if they did do fourteen teams, the only thing that would sort of like force them to like hold on to conference championships is having to make it at least seven conference champions to get in to make it so it's half and half. So there's you got to limit the amount of space of that largest for that to work. Which at that point it's almost like because what is it? It's nine conferences now. So at that point it's just. It'd almost be every conference, whether power or lower, would make its way back in, and that'll sort of almost undo what they've currently done by like concentrating power and and what is now four conferences, really. And that'll be like, hey, if I know seven champions champions can get in, why not, you know, why not Washington, Oregon, be like, hey, might not reform the Pac-12, but we can just go to the Mountain West. Yeah, I don't know. Uh, and honestly, I think there's so much money at stake. I'm not sure they would let in too many more guaranteed spots for uh, uh, for, for the G5, just realistically. But I, And I, I could see the reason they would want to expand beyond the 12 is they want to add more of those, those potential AQ spots for some more teams, like, I don't know, the top three, top four. And it'll be really interesting, too, because, I mean, you'd probably have a clear top two um, particularly with a conference title game, I mean, who would necessarily be those those teams from the uh, the the Big Ten and the SEC? And I mean, assumably they would both get in anyway as um, as at large or as AQs. But um, it would be interesting to see who would would be when you get down the 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 tiebreakers that would start to have if there's a a third versus fourth or a, a fourth versus fifth kind of question there. Um, I'd look forward to that. It would be. Uh, I mean, it would be drama. There would be a lot of drama. And, you know, one thing I will say, especially when we're talking about even the 12-team model, and again, we're getting the 12-team no matter what for the next two years, it's going to make a lot more games interesting later in the season because we're going to see teams that know they're in if they win out and and the, the stakes are going to be high. And there's going to be teams that just outside that are also going to be high because they're going to know that if one of those teams above them falters, they're going to have the chance to maybe climb up. So there's going to be a lot at stake. And I'm really looking forward to seeing what it's going to feel like come mid-November next year. Oh, I should <laughs> this year, I should say. Come mid-November this year, it's going to be really interesting to see how this this dynamic plays out. You know, let's see here. College Football Lounge, I see you're up here again. It's good to hear. Good to see you. What, what's on your mind? Hey, good evening, everybody. Uh, I just wanted to say that what John said, I, I agree with 100% as far as conferences. <clears throat> Excuse me. You get to the point where... To, to have a conference championship game, winning that, winning the conference has to get you something. So they need to think very carefully, in my opinion, about expanding beyond 12 because I was sitting here as, we, as, as I was listening, trying to figure out, okay, if you go to 14, if you go to 16, how do we work this out where if you win a conference title game, it gets you something and something would be a buy. And I couldn't make the math work out. When you go to 14 and 16, once you get past, if you give the top four a bye, once you get past that, in a 14 or 16 team playoff, the math doesn't work out. You end up with an odd number of teams after the first round games. So 12, you got four teams, the top four conference champions, they get a bye, you win the conference championship game, it gets you something. So I just think you start expanding beyond 12, you open up a, a whole lot of other considerations. If you expand too far, you could get into kind of what the NFL has sometimes, which is teams basically just playing backups late in the year, you know, week 17. Um, you know, we know we're in the playoffs. This game doesn't matter. We're just going to play a bunch of backups and it just kind of makes a, a mockery of the entire thing. So I just think it's going to have to be very well thought out and very carefully constructed if they want to go beyond 12. Yeah, I agree with you. 
Right, I do, and I'm I'm wondering if if maybe they're getting. It, it is funny to think how quickly the the conversation changed. Just to think the battle to get to you know to four. I mean, because those of us who are old enough to remember even the BCS being introduced in '98, but then you know the idea of a 14 playoff, and then suddenly, oh wow, we're going to get 12. It was talked about for years now, like we haven't even started 12, and we're already talking about expanding it again. That, and I mean, that is again a product of the super, the two super conferences, which just didn't exist in the last couple of years when they were first negotiating the idea of a 12 team playoff. But um, yeah, it's it's fascinating stuff. John, your hands up. Yeah, and just continue on. So. Hypothetically, if they added more uh, AQs in the future, would that almost, you think, almost bring more parity to the sport in general? So, hypothetically, let's say there's a team that, you know, just that in the one of these two mega conferences that are just struggling to get a bid because there's so many teams in the conference that they try to go to a jump to another conference where they have the resources to potentially be a more uh, beneficial AQ every single year. I don't know if the money would be make it worth it, to be honest, because you have to remember the big thing here is the TV deals. Now, there was a really and this is this is almost this is futurist futurism or however you want to call it, where you're kind of speculating pretty heavily. But one thing that has been in the back of my mind, and this is something that came up when the Pac-12 got its bad offer and, and collapsed. But the thing that was being said was, you know, yeah, this offer is strange and it's not as desirable because there were a lot of, we've talked about it before in the, in earlier conversations, but there was a lot of speculation about how like Apple was basically telling them like, this could be very lucrative if certain things happen. And the Pac-12 programs were tired of that because that's the way they were sold the Pac-12 network, which completely flopped. So when they were, um, the, but the reason I bring it up, the idea was eventually the next round of media deals, it's going to be a question of with the way cord cutting has been progressing, will the cable companies, will the, the, will the TV deals be able to match the numbers they are now, or will they be lower? And if they are lower, will some teams start to look at being independents again, um, knowing that if they put together an interesting schedule, they might be able to become an, an at-large and get into it. But that that's a huge speculative question here because another question was like, wait, Florida State manages to break apart the ACC, which even if they do, I expect that to take a couple of years. It's not going to be anytime soon. I mean, w- where they would join from there, I mean, you know, certainly they would be an attractive addition and, and so would some other ACC teams to the two super conferences. But I mean, it's, it's interesting. I, I think the, the more realistic one in the, and again, I'm, I don't know how likely it is, but it's far more realistic than that others plan the sky thing I just described would be that if we go to a, a 14 or, or a 16 team, that eventually we see the conference title games go away, which, you know, if you're old enough, you remember the, the age before conference title games. I mean, the Pac-12 didn't add one until far later. Um, the, you know, the Big Ten, Big 12 didn't have one until they famously had that really awkward first season of the uh, the college football playoff where they had two teams that should have won, at least one of them should have got in. And, of course, the team that got in was the team that won it all, Ohio State, in their place. So the, there's been some interesting questions there, and, and but I think we could go back to that model theoretically, although the teams, there were fewer teams when we used to do that. Um, college football lounge. I just wanted to say again, I think John, again, brings up a pretty – that's an excellent point and honestly something I hadn't thought a ton about before he said that. But, you know, you get these massive conferences and, you know, depending on how the playoff is structured, if you can only get X amount of teams from one conference in, um, you know, either by, you know, statute or just logistically, you know, at some point in fandom, you can only sell we're making a whole lot of money so far you know i think about major league baseball and you have some of these markets where you know they basically just don't spend and it's you know we're, we're just gonna we're making money we're not gonna spend we're not gonna spend to be competitive and then you have ballparks that are you know 80 percent empty every game and you know I, I mean i definitely think that's a consideration for the future i mean and you're gonna have fan bases who are gonna be you know just year after year after year, you're uncompetitive. And, you know, yeah, we're making a lot of money being in this league. But at, at some point, you know, you have to give people hope, I think. Yeah, no, indeed. And, and you know, maybe for those guys that are hoping they'll, they'll have that occasional competitive season. But, you know, part of me is like, oh, this is Vanderbilt erasure. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Ski Master Murphy, I see your hand up. College Football Lounge, I have the solution. Promotion and relegation in college football. 
that's the only we're been, it feels like we're eventually just gonna have to get there. Yes. Promotion and relegation to college football. So guys who played two years ahead of you who you don't know have now made it so your team's poor. <laughs> At ski ski master, sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. I, I've been I'm 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 an absolute pro pro rail sicko and college football person. So I, this is all I've wanted in the sport for all the chaotic reasons. So yes, yes, let's bring the pro rail to college football, please. I want I want I want I want to take like a like Nebraska Wesleyan right up to the Big Ten. I want I want to see all the sick sicko type matchups in in college football. <laughs> No, uh, my my college roommate when I was in Michigan hated me for this because I came up with an idea that was so much more chaotic than just traditional promotion relegation. Because at this time, this is when the Big East was like on its last leg. And I said, why not have conferences have promotion and relegation? Because right, that was when uh, Boise State, TCU, Utah, Nevada had all somehow managed to being the Mountain West, it lasted for, I think, like two seasons before TCU and Utah decided to split. But I sat there and I said, what if you they could just promote and relegate the conferences each year based on how they play against opponents in other conferences? That would be the best way to go. But we're, we can't do that now. Because yeah, that unfortunately now, be too. I, I mean, trust me, that would be. I've seen some great models out there, but it's the the best way it works is when the teams don't have all the infrastructure and money already invested at stake because then they don't want to let go. <laughs> John, your hands up. Yeah, you know, my if if I have one thing I wanted for pro rel, um, I want to make sure you know the if the whoever the top team is or the conference below on the second level and the bottom team would face off in a in a one of those obscure Tuesday bowl games. Like one yeah. very sad fan base. And That's what your fan does. Somewhere in Charlotte at like the, at like the, at like, like I said, like a toast three bowl type situation and a very excited fan base at the same bowl game. Just, I love it. I, 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 that's all I would love to see at the end of the season. Just give me that final stand or final push from one of those yeah. Two sides. Yeah. Scheme as Smurfy said, and, I, and I've been a big proponent of this because that's how the, you know, it's it, the small Japanese. Co- well, it's not small. There's over 200 teams in Japan, but they they have vertically integrated conferences. So at the end of the season, exactly as you said, the bottom two teams from a conference play the top two teams. I should say from a division play the top two teams from the lower division in like the most high stakes postseason game, where one team is fighting to stay in and the other team is fighting to go up. But I mean, it prevents automatic relegation, which is neat because then, and also, man, that's got to be. Can you imagine the TV entertainment? People will tune in to watch those games because it is just going to be like bloodlust for the hard, the hardest of the hardcore college football fans to watch these teams. And uh, you know, some people might even just show up and cheer for everybody. I mean, you can see, I mean, every, Goliath, which is arguably the weakest team in the higher level, is going to be like people are going to be cheer, cheering against them. It's going to be hilarious. You're going to see teams that otherwise are terrors of like you know fcs or, or g5 you know like north dakota state or south dakota state i guess now is the ascendant team people in the fcs are they're normally the bad guys and suddenly they're going to be like the scrappy underdog taking on gosh i don't know i mean if, if they're only moving up to the, the g5 it would be like akron or something that would be that would be exciting stuff ski master murphy and then john thinking about this i'm now i'm just imagining the teams who would have just been like Wetting the bed during like the heydays of like Youngstown State, Appalachian State, when they beat Michigan. Imagine, <laughs> um, even when the Michigan grad, my dad went to App State. Imagine if App State beating Michigan automatically got Michigan relegated. Oh, the, the pure chaos that would. Oh, that, that happened is. instantaneously in the middle. Of, like yeah. no one would schedule <laughs> these games instantaneously. Instantaneously, you lose to SCS school, you got to go down. So like when a like when Duke Georgia got Southern held, beat like, Florida that one year before Georgia Southern yeah, moved up. Like when Duke got the hell like negative thirty total yards by University of Richmond, that would have been enough one. Uh, oh my gosh! When it, uh, when South Dakota State beat Iowa, uh, uh, that could create some perfect moments and just utter chaos. Oh yeah, I'm thinking of some of the more obscure ones, like when McNeese beat up USF, and when uh, gosh, it was Portland State. Beat North North Texas in the middle of the season so badly that they fought North Texas fired their head coach before they went to the presser because they lost to an FCS team and got blown out. 
So yeah, that, that would have been funny if it also was an automatic relegation. Or, <laughs> or JMU automatically becoming the best team in the state of Virginia, being taken out Virginia Tech. So many, yeah. so many things can happen. <laughs> John, I see your hand up. Yeah, I was, I was thinking of more modern day options like James Madison and Florida playing in somewhere in like the like playing somewhere in the middle of nowhere, South Carolina, for uh, the for who 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 stays in the SEC and who goes to up. You know, you know, just I, I think just that would just be prime time football. I would I think I would take the day off just to watch something as, as hilarious as two a very panicky fan base. Watching maybe their, the, the idea they have they have to play at places like us in Old Dominion and like in Boone, North Carolina, for the next year. That 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 would bring me so much joy to watch. And then 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 they have to jump on our message boards. They have to, they, have to, they would have to simulate with us for a year. It would. It would oh my goodness! It would, it would, I, I love that you said pan, like yeah, they would be absolutely panicky fan bases. I can't even imagine the stress. I can't even imagine the, how moderating a game thread like that would be. Oh, my goodness. Because you'd have all the rival fans just in there, completely dumping on them every time they're, they're having a problem. You know, I want to just quickly uh, mention a couple of other news items just before I forget. Ohio State, um, one of the, their hikes, obviously they've been winning this offseason, so they've, they may have earned the February National Championship. We'll see where it goes in the fall. But they, they hired Sam Petito, uh, the former Alabama Director of Personnel Operations. Again, I mean... I had this thought, even if Ryan Day, you know, the expectations that he's built, I mean, has any team won the last two months quite like they have? I mean, to think about losing that bowl to Mizzou and looking lackluster, uh, you know, having obviously lost to Michigan and watching Michigan go and win a national championship. I, I give them credit for, for sparking a lot of interest, but they have a, a fairly you know, there, there's some tough games. The game that I'm absolutely circling is a pretty about midway through the season. They go and play in Austin Stadium against Oregon, and Oregon's the other team I thought did a great job of keeping their team together and, and supplementing it pretty well with, with the portal. But I mean, let's say Ryan Day somehow has like a you know a, I don't know how you call it, like a Jimbo Fisher moment where you did all this stuff right in the off season and just don't quite get it together. Whoever takes over next is going to have an incredible system in place because this 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 offseason for Ohio State, I just want to say, has, has been really interesting to see. A couple of other interesting items. This one, I, I mean, I wanted to bring this one up because obviously we talked about it, you know, uh, with UCLA uh, hiring Deshaun Foster to be that coach. It's kind of an odd decision in some ways because obviously, but then to be fair, Chip Kelly left in a really odd situation uh, to go be the Ohio State um, offensive coordinator. But I was struck because the, and I don't know if it's 100% been finalized. I don't think it has been yet, but it looks like Eric Bieniemy is going to be potentially their next offensive coordinator. Um, he was previous, previously with the commanders. It, it sounds like he left there kind of amicably, but to me, this kind of underlines what bothered me a little bit about the UCLA uh, head coaching search because Eric B has been a head coaching candidate for many years. I mean, in the NFL, but also I remember before Colorado hired Dion, he was one of the leading candidates to be, cause he's a Colorado alum himself. He'd played there. He was a lead candidate to be the head coach. So Deshaun Foster, I mean, again, I'm hoping he's successful there. Well, you know, as, as far as the USC alum could. But, you know, at the same time, I mean, you know, he's, he's supposed to be exciting. He's young-ish. Um, he's my age, so I guess that, that is young enough. Um, and he has an opportunity to perhaps galvanize a fan base, help get that NIL money that's been kind of low at UCLA. But to hire a guy who, if you had told me, like, if UCLA had announced they had hired Eric Bieniemy as their head coach, people would have been like, oh, yeah, no, that's a good guy. That's a rising coach. He's he's someone everyone was just waiting to see when he was going to be head coach somewhere. To see him as the offensive coordinator is, is just a little odd to me. But, again, hopefully, you know, we'll see how that works out. Um, certainly not a weak hire. So, again, I, I just want to say that much for UCLA and hiring Eric Bieniemy. Ski Max Murphy, I see your hand up. Fun fact, Eric Bieniemy is the reason everything came out about Deshaun Watson. There you go. Um, you know, let's see, a couple of other, this is a minor one, but I, I, for those who remember, Dirk Cotter, who uh, was the head coach of Boise State years and years ago, before Dan Hawkins, uh, they had that great run of head coaches where they had Dirk Cotter, who did well and went to Colorado, didn't do so great. Uh, there and then Chris Peterson, who succeeded Dan Hawkins, did exceptionally and did well at Washington before he retired on his own terms. Um, so Dirk Carter's coming back to be the uh, offensive coordinator. So uh, he'd been back uh, at least in the support staff in previous seasons as well. 
But again, that makes me want to say welcome back, Cotter, um, which again, maybe a bit of a reference to for some of our older listeners. Um, another one uh, that was kind of an interesting note. Uh, Jackson Dart apparently has now an uh, NIL deal with a private jet company. So I guess if you that there that's setting another bar. So if you can't get a private jet company to be your NIL sponsor, I mean that's a that's a weak one. Another kind of fun video that maybe some of you have seen. Look it up if you haven't had a chance. UTEP's new head coach Scotty Walden's running around the basketball arena in full body paint. Um, you know that's the kind of excitement you need. You UTEP went in a different direction because they went with a whole series of head coaches who had been experienced head coaches, if not necessarily super successful head coaches before um, they decided instead to go with a younger guy, someone who um, he was at Austin P uh, and he was able to turn them around after, you know, they kind of had a, a little kind of a, a down moment there with, with Hudspeth. Uh, well, he was there for one season and they fired him for cause, but to see him, um, Scotty Walden, he, he, he had a really interesting rise. Some of you may not be familiar with, cause why would you, um, he was at small college football, actually moved around like three times. He ended up at Sul Ross, which is in Alpine, Texas, which is basically in the Big Bend region of Texas, like the middle of nowhere kind of Texas, um, even more isolated than UTEP in the El Paso, because at least El Paso is close to, uh, you know, is close to some other areas as well, um, but way out there in, in that in that region of Texas. But the thing was, he when he was at Sul Ross as a player, he kind of knew he wasn't going to be... Uh, uh, a superstar player. So he started basically assisting the, the coaching staff as a student. And then right at the end of his playing career, their offensive coordinator, I believe went on to take a different job and they promoted him immediately to the offensive coordinator. So he started right out the gate, 2012 finished his playing career. And was the offensive coordinator of the team, he was just on at Sul Ross and then went on to East Texas Baptist became their head coach uh, went to Southern Miss as an assistant to kind of build up his resume. And of course, you know, was at Austin P and then now he's at UTEP. So he's one of those exciting kind of coaches. Um, just wanted to mention that because, uh, you know, again, it'll be interesting to see if he can get something going with UTEP, but now they've gone a different way. And, you know, like obviously, uh, God, who was that last coach they had again? Um, no, cause I, I always go back to Mike Price. It's so funny. It wasn't my, Dana, Dana Dimmel. Pardon me. You know, again, that they're going with a young coach, so I think that that'll be an interesting move, and to see if that can can get things going there. Uh, Hawaii, by the way, has finally added that week zero game. They're going to have Delaware State, the Hornets, HBCU, uh, way out, you know, natural rivals, uh, Hawaii and Delaware. So that'll be Delaware State. Pardon me. So that'll at least be a great trip for those players. I mean, uh, win for them. Hey, John, your hands up. Well, first of all, shout out to Delaware State, man. I hope they plug. I hope they plugged their. Uh their uh, their miles and everything or their their uh their personal numbers so you get some good miles from that trip uh, um and also secondly speaking of the uh players with the private plane deal i i i can't imagine what reggie bush feels every time he sees one a new piece of news like this it, it almost feel it almost feels insulting at this point for, <laughs> to the point that he you know he keeps seeing more and more ridiculous things and he lost that he lost the Heisman for but um the the big thing I want to ask about was just about regarding uh, Jordan McLeod. I'm not sure if you saw that news today. Um, he's actually transferring over to Texas State from JMU, which is a little bit of a surprise. A lot of folks thought he was going to go over, uh, maybe over to uh, where his head coach is now, or his previous head coach is, or he's going to go up to the Power Five conference. Concerning he was the uh, Sun Belt Player of the Year, so just kind of curious of what your thoughts are. Hmm. No, that's a good one. I haven't. I had not seen that particular news. So he's transferred to where again? Uh, Texas State. Boy, wow, that's a great. Pull for Texas State, huh? I wonder what for, but uh, I, I it, it was been it's been an odd period for him transfer wise. Because he he declared all the way back in December, and there's a lot of people you know speculating what which uh, Power Five team he's going to go to because it was it seemed very chairs, and he was the last guy you know left by <laughs> left with the check in the room. Yeah, that that's got me curious. I don't have a clear answer for that because I mean you wonder. It, were there were there factors that we're not aware of right now because we're you know we don't we're not in, in the 
rooms where these these discussions happen. But uh, yeah, I'll, I'll be interesting to see. And I mean, Texas State isn't bad, but uh, but yeah, that, that that's kind of a surprise if he had that opportunity to move up. Maybe he also just wanted to get out, and maybe the, the head coaching change over there was enough that he decided he wanted to move on. Um, or maybe how he clicked. Of course, that would have been before he clicked at all with, or even met the new coaching staff. So yeah, that's a, that's a mystery for me. I don't have a good answer for you on that one. It'll be interesting to see that. Um, you know, one other, again, a couple of other, these little news and notes I wanted to mention before I forget. So, uh, one of the, I guess at Houston, he was a pass rush, pass rush specialist assistant, but Kenetsu Daisy is expected to become FIU's outside linebacker and defensive end coach. I like to mention him because not only was he a USC Trojan, he was an excellent player. He got drafted by the Minnesota Vikings. And I still remember how crushing it was to hear he got not very, like a few years into his career, he got diagnosed with leukemia. Um, this is like 2009 or so. So, I mean, I, I was just shocked. I mean, most people were shocked to hear because he was still a young man. Um, but he battled. He succeeded. He obviously retired from playing, but was able to get into the coaching rank. So he's going to be at FIU, um, you know, again, as assistant coach. But just to see a guy who went through all of that, you know, it, it's good to see that. And, I, you know, I, I hope he, he succeeds because that's one of the, the, the more interesting stories out there. Um, another interesting story out there, the Utah legislature advanced uh, some bills that would require athletes to report their NIL deals to the university, but shield it from public record requests. The bill would take effect on uh, May 1st and apply to all schools in the state of Iowa, public or private, um, which of course is like a point at BYU. But the bill does four things, and this is where it's kind of amusing, because the first one is just classic Utah being Utah. Like it bans students from signing NIL deals related to alcohol, tobacco, pornography, firearms, and or gambling. Um, so again, uh, that that's the, the Utah legislature is, is that sounds about par for course. Um, it requires students to report and all NIL deals over $600 to their school for review to ensure it does not violate point one. Um, Exempts players and schools from public record requests relating to NIL, so the NIL deals remain private. I think that's going to uh, that that kind of that might, might annoy some people, and I'll get to that in a second. And for finally, it bans schools from using school funds to assist players with facilitating NIL deals. So we'll see how that one goes, especially with the changing uh, look on on the no rules NIL world we're temporarily in, um, potentially p- permanently after that injunction uh, last Friday. So. I just say the, the exempting them from public relations requests. One of the things, the one argument I've heard for reporting NIL deals is it allows players to have a better potential idea of their free market value. If everyone has to report their deals, suddenly, you know, players can kind of compare. At the same time, if you're looking at the free market perspective, the ability to potentially make deals without having to release them, that's part of normal contract terms in many industries. So um, I could see why players would also not want to necessarily reveal that either so um we'll see how that one goes but that one that that particular legislation very utah very much uh, kind of seems a little bit more complicated than it needs to be especially in this era where everyone's racing to to loosen the rules very much getting closer and closer to helmet communications after that successful test in the Bulls, um, where some of the teams were allowed to do it and opt in, it's really interesting to see some of the comments. Uh, Dennis Dodd wrote a good article on this for CBS Sports. Um, you know, one of the like one of the coordinators was like, you know, it helped. You know, the experiment sure helped Jason Bean, Kansas's backup quarterback, through six touchdown passes in the Liberty Bowl over UN. LV um, and their offensive coordinator quoted, you know, it's hard to steal signs when you're talking to the players directly. And I love this part. That was a good part just to be able to keep him calm, you know, to talk to the guy, you know, you don't have to have those guys with the sheets and, and all of the, the wacky things out there. And you know, I always wondered that some of these guys, especially the quarterbacks, you know, when they go to the NFL, they don't have to deal with this crap. So, you know, how much is that training for them? It's like, oh, wow, they, they can just talk into my helmet. They don't, I don't have to, to look at the sideline and see all kinds of um, strange things. One other interesting article out there that, uh, that I know I put this one up on RCFB because I, I thought it was an interesting kind of analysis. And this was um, from Professor Michael McCann, who I respect deeply at the University of New Hampshire, who writes for Sportico. He used to write for SI when SI, before SI started its slow implosion. Um, 
basically he puts the 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 world of of college sports kind of together in a way that um that i thought was was interesting because he brings up the fact that it seems again inevitable that at some point they're going to just drop the facade and and student athletes are going to be employees if maybe not all student athletes maybe it'll just be the the football and and men's basketball break off and become their own thing to kind of insulate the rest of college sports because it could be financially ruinous and, and potentially end some of the non-revenue sports the ones that are the olympic sports but um setting that aside uh he kind of puts it in the perspective that we're also seeing what happened at dartmouth where an nrlb board ruled that the uh the men's basketball team could at least try to unionize and that's an awkward one too because it's a private entity and there is no real revenue at stake. But even though you know they're, they're not necessarily being there on sports scholarships, they, they said there was a lot of value that these players were earning and they should be able to unionize as employees. And they're, they're basically employed. And which if you say a Ivy League uh, team is, is com- comprising what essentially are employees, it's going to be very easy to do that in FBS or ORS. He brought those up and said, like, this could be a budget crunch for some schools. Now, the P5 and, and most, I think most of the P5 and, and even some of the G5, the concern he brings up, and this is something that people don't talk about, but it is coming. We're, we're, this, is a, this is something that has nothing to do with, with people's views on college education, because sometimes you'll hear that, and, and that, that's actually missing the point. We're, there's a demographic shortfall that's hitting just the population of the United States because populations go up and down, you know, the baby boom. And then there was like a mini boom, which were the kids of the baby boom. These things happen in cycles. Well, we're about to hit a downstretch that sounds like it's going to be pretty bad. Um, the student population, the, just the, the people who are college age in the U.S. is projected to shrink dramatically beginning in 2025. So again, next year, and it will last for about 12 years until 2037, in which case birth rates, the way the birth rates right now, that that group will be made up for in the next wave that gets to college. Why is that important? Because setting aside athletics, colleges need, of course, need people to make money. They need the tuition dollars that these students are bringing in. um, And even the scholarship money that's coming in through various programs that gets paid to the university to help educate them. So these two things happening together, And again, I'm saying that without even particularly editorial thoughts. I just think that's something that we're going to see. Um, so in this McCann article, it kind of tried to weave them together, and it brings up the idea that this could be a dark moment. It, the schools that I think are going to be affected by this are not – most of the P5 and G5 are not going to be affected by this. because and, and a good number of FCS teams because they're already top schools where people want to go. Where it's going to happen – what will happen is if the student population goes down – you know, Harvard or, or even like in North Dakota State or, you know, Ohio State or, you know, USC, UCLA. These schools are always, people are always going to want to go to those schools. They already have extremely low, you know, some of them have very low acceptance rates. Those schools, okay, fine, no problem. But there's going to be trickle-down effect. So the schools that might have been the backup schools, the schools that might not have been the ones that people were really heavily interested in going into, and especially those without state support, those are going to be the ones that are going to see the biggest crunch. I mean, the small private colleges, my goodness, it's going to be a dark time for them. So if suddenly there's a demographic crunch for 12 years, which is coming, where the college-age population, the number of potential customers is about to plummet, and you're going to suddenly potentially have to pay athletes, that could be a recipe for disaster. And that's another reason why, you know, if, again, I think that I think that's inevitable, that at least the idea of paying the football players is coming. Um, but they may have to come up with a way to separate them. I think, and it's interesting too, it's kind of a, an oddball quote that came out of Fortune that ended up on RCF. But uh, uh, Charlie Baker, the, the head of the NCAA, who is a very, is a decent enough realist sometimes when he talks, he said, uh, he said 95% of student athletes could face extinction if colleges actually have to pay them as employees. I love the way that's phrased as though they're going to all be destroyed. But I think what he's trying to hint at is what I was just talking about, where if suddenly these these teams that are already running in the red are suddenly forced to also pay minimum wage, that could be a problem. Um, and especially with the fact that, because again, sorry to go back to the, uh, the, the shrinking demographics, but the way universities are preparing for this is they're simply 
they're simply uh, not hiring as many faculty. They're not renewing positions. They're, they're basically bracing themselves to have to run leaner. Um, and if suddenly in running leaner, you're also having to pay an enormous sum that you weren't planning on, that could be, then suddenly, you know, athletics becomes a, too much of a liability. But uh, hey, John, I see your hand up and Waterboy, I see you want to join us. Yeah, um, in regards to that, do you think the bigger schools are really a danger, or are we really talking about maybe the D, the D three, the NI, you know, the NI schools, the D twos, even that maybe the FCS that are potentially maybe in potentially more danger as you know as this uh, mm-hmm. you know as this approaches to twenty twenty five? Because I I mean I would think that you know, of course the bigger schools you know I think they always find their ways around, but I think you, we've even seen it and it's much smaller. Uh, private schools are, are really the ones that have been suffering already for the last decade. I think that I personally think that those are the first uh, the schools that really would maybe be shutting programs down. Oh yeah, I think you're right. I think it's going to be the more obscure D three and NAIA private schools. They're the ones that are going to get wiped out. Now you might see. I think you could still see at even even some G five and FCS programs. And I'm not saying they would shut down football, but I could see them like saying, "All right, Olympic sports. They're just." You know, the, we can't afford to keep all of these things going and and still throw. Because I mean, w- these w- if they if the football program is running in the red, then you're in real trouble. Because where's the money coming from, right? Um, basketball also brings in money, but it just doesn't bring in that same number of money. Um, and that again comes from the NCAA. So the idea of suddenly slaughtering the NCAA would be a real could be a real problem for um, for some of these folks. But uh, it's it's a I do agree. It's going to mostly affect the smallest schools. And then with the larger schools, it'll start to affect not football and basketball, but the other sports, um, which I think some rightfully think would be a shame because what does that even do for like the Olympic effort for, uh, for the American sports? But that isn't quite what is pulling in those dollars. That's for sure. The water boy. And then let's go to ski masks. Murphy. Um, I just every time they talk about pay for like players or, or make them employees, especially in football, I always think about the Bagman uh, article by Stephen Godfrey. It's like ten years ago, where it said basically you could pay these guys forty thousand dollars like as employees, but there's still going to be a Bagman lining up to pay them an extra forty grand to come to their school. So I don't know if it really changes anything from how we currently have NIL. It's just one of the things I always think about when, when you, when they talk about classifying the football players as employees and paying them. Yeah, I think you're right on that. I think because I mean the way NIL works now, it's it's voluntary, I and mean, people are giving money because they want to give money, and some are just people with ridiculous sums of money happy to give it away. Some are are more collaborative with many uh, many smaller donors for sure. But yeah, this is going to suddenly just throw on an entire layer. Um, that that you know some of these schools just aren't prepared to do. Um, Ski Master Murphy, your hands up. Yeah, I was just going to comment on, you know, which schools is going to affect. Honestly, I think it's going to hit the schools that are like in the middle. It's like maybe not all of the top D one programs are going to survive, but most of them will be fine if they have to pay the players. But like D three doesn't give out scholarships, and I don't think really football is really like a muddy making avenue for them. So I think they might be able to get away with being like, hey, we don't actually generate revenue from football. So if you want to come play fo- football for us, you'll just play for like the love of the game like you're in high school. And then I think B2 is only like 20 scholarships. So I think they may be in that same boat as a D3. But I think the FCS programs, like especially if, you, if you're not a steady playoff contender, I think those programs, like, if they have to pay guys to be employees, those are going to be the programs that get shuttered quickly in the beginning. I think it's going to first take out them, then like slowly like creep up and take out like the New Mexico's, New Mexico states or Western Kentucky. Not to say they're bad programs, but they're like the smaller ones at the top. You know, an interesting way to look at it too, is if the, um, the top programs decide that, okay, then to save more, you know, athletic brand, we'll create a, a separate entity, um, a P4, whatever you want to call it or I should say a D4 or whatever you want to call it, where the top programs, maybe the, the, the P4 and whatever, and whoever else can afford to joins them, then you might see an interesting set of you know questions with the, those middle teams. Like, do we try to pay the money to join that and, and have to pay all these players and do all these things? Can we manage that? Or do we go back to you know the lower division, at least for some of these sports, 
where perhaps there might be acceptance to not pay them. You know, another option that could pop up, and I just thought of that for the D3, is if they're forced to pay, you could turn some of these into club teams because there is a club football universe out there, and, and they play with full pads, helmets, all that stuff. Um, and that, that, then you're kind of sidestepping the fact that they're not actually official athletics, but that could create complications in and of its own. I'm literally spitballing off the top of my head here. Um, but it's an interesting question in and of itself. And I think, yeah, for, for those middle teams, it's going to be a question of how to manage sports and where to place them and maybe to continue sports before those smaller, private, obscure colleges. It's going to be an existential crisis. But, and one thing I did want to say, they do, some of the D3 and NAIA programs do make money off of football, but it's not in the same way. They make money because all those players are paying sticker or close to sticker price to go to the school so they can also play football. So they, they like these smaller schools that have been adding football in the last, oh, I'd say five, six years, that, that has been absolutely a play to, to get a bunch of guys. First of all, sometimes the, the campuses also just want to balance out their, you know, they, they maybe have started to have like a majority female campus and they want to have more 50-50. So if you had a football team to a smaller college, suddenly you had like 60, 80 guys, um, most of which if you're deep, or NAIA, or all of which, if you're at D3, are probably going to pay close to retail price to go to the game, probably to go to the campus. Um, so that's been the other angle they've been using there rather than trying to, to necessarily pack a stadium, um, which is interesting. John? Yep. Don't want to change the subject, but I just had uh, one more question for the night. Um, it's actually for you. Uh, there's only two options you can pick from. Um, so your opinion on court storming slash field storming. Are you a fun person or are you Jay Bylas? <laughs> you know, I, I, I think that every now and again these things come up, but I don't know how you could possibly correct it. I like it. I think it's fine. But I was trying to think of a way to make people happy. And again, I think there is a nuance to it. Court storming is such a sudden effort. I mean, that's a sudden. If you've, I mean, all of us have probably seen it before. But the first time you see one, you're like, holy crap. I can't believe how quick. right out onto it uh there's some football fields where you can do that but not most so okay this is my way of solving it but it, it's it's complicated orwellian and would probably be a, not a thrill but if you go into a football if you go into a football venue or it's probably a football venue if you go into a sports venue you know you gotta they, they take your ticket and all that stuff but when they take your ticket when you have them go through what like so you have to go through the usually the metal detector anyway have it just take a picture of you and your ticket. So you're suddenly bonded with your ticket. They know exactly who you were and where you got there. Now, facial recognition technology has gotten pretty good. So the moment everyone runs on the court, if you're one of the people that does something stupid, ooh, they probably could get your face from those uh, those videos. Uh, just put in some better high-def cameras for that. That could resolve it, but that's an expensive thing I just described. Technology is probably there. I mean, for some of you might have followed this this whole saga with Madison Square Garden. I forgot the yeah, name of the guy who owns it. Yeah, but he uh, he's been using that to like maliciously, not maliciously, but if you piss him off, you can't get into Madison Square Garden. And they know you're coming in because the facial recognition software they use spots everybody. And the funny thing is he doesn't use it for people who misbehave in the arena. He, he does it for like opposing lawyers in lawsuits. And to me, that's hilarious because the lawyers, they're just being hired. It's not like they're the ones trying to get the money out of them. He's just angry and vindictive. So you can't see the Knicks if you sued him, man. Um, luckily they haven't pulled that crap at the sphere because they own the sphere, obviously in Vegas. But, um, that, that I, uh, that, that was kind of a funny thing I wanted to bring up. Boy, I saw some hands go up here. So let's see here. Uh, cultural ball lounge scheme asks to Murphy and the water boy. Yeah, so um, <laughs> I, I probably would be branded a, a bit of a killjoy in certain circles when talking about this particular topic, but I, I'm not Jay Billis, who I think said that they should just, once everyone's on the floor, they should not let them leave and then give them all citations. And then you had Seth Davis trying to compare college basketball to the NBA, which was also ridiculous. But I do think that, and, you know, maybe it, when I'm talking about this, I'm talking about more like, you know, the power conference level. I mean, the these schools do need to be held accountable for having a plan and adequate security to protect the opposing team and staff. And if they're not doing that, then the conference needs to hit them with fines that are 
significant enough to get their attention and change their behavior. It's not that difficult to get the opposing team and staff off the floor and, you know, still allowing the, you know, the, the students and fans to do what they're going to do. I mean, I don't see that as some sort of insurmountable hurdle to, to, you know, to jump over. Um, so, I mean, maybe that's, you know, when you go down to uh, the non-power conference level, that's not quite as possible because of budgetary reasons. But, I mean, I think, you know, if you're, if you're in the ACC, you can probably afford, you know, 20, 30 more yellow shirts. For sure. Uh, excuse me, ask Murphy. Well, James Dolan is a very entertaining sports owner, <laughs> to say the least. But, yeah, I don't – it's not just Madison Square Garden. I think the Pistons – also have a where it's supposed to be passive uh, facial recognition, where it's only supposed to be if you commit an infraction that they actually use it on you, unlike Dolan in the next where it's just like he's a little temperamental. But I was going to say, um, when it comes to like court and field storming, it's one of those weird situations where it's like, yeah, it's great for the fans, but also it's like it creates an extremely massive liability for like the owners because I think technically like most venues of uh, sports are like the, the playing surface and like the actual stadium are like two separate things for like insurance purposes. And then also like the other thing, which is the funniest thing that I learned when I had to referee youth soccer is that with inside of every sports international like refereeing handbook, it does state that as a referee, when anyone invades what is considered the surface of play, anyone who's being supposed to be there can can call off on anyone who's deemed had not supposed to be there in self-defense. And as a referee, you're actually supposed to go to, go to court and defend them. <laughs> That's fascinating. Oh, my goodness. Waterboy and then John, as we kind of slowly wrap this up. Um, yeah, you laughed when you said, uh, thankfully, they haven't done it at the Sphere. And I was just wondering, does that mean um, – you're thankful because you were helping advise some council against Madison Square Garden in the New York Knicks? <laughs> I was wondering if you'd say that because I did go to the Sphere. So, I mean, imagine if like, yeah, so I got to the U2 concert. No problem. <laughs> you know, no, the, uh, no, the, you're not allowed. Thought, Your yeah. wife can go. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That's great. Yeah. No, no, no. It wasn't because of that. But <laughs> thanks for remembering that. Um, John, uh, what's on your mind? Yeah. I just want to wrap the topic up real quick. Um, I, I just, you know, my opinion on short corner, I mean, I, I love it. I think it's, it's such a pure part of the game for, you know, football and basketball, but really any sport, man. Like, hey, if, you're, if your kid wins uh, his local turn, uh, his local soccer tournament, run the field after the game's over. Who's going to stop you? I mean, no one's going to, someone's going to throw a juice back in your head. But um, I, I, I definitely agree with you, you know, what a lot of you guys have said. I think there's definitely ways you can protect the players, uh, opposing players from liability. And I've we've seen teams do before. Where they have to specifically security have measures so that the away bench is protected in particular, and that the you know the court storming is held to particular parts of the of the playing surface. Um, like I said, I I'm I'm big for it. I, I love I love the idea of, of a court storm. I think it's such a cool part of the sport, especially it's good memories for the students. Um, and then you know it it also produces a lot of hilarious situations. I'm not sure if anyone saw the two. Uh, two different teams that just won their first game of the year in the last two weeks where one of them, uh, you know, it was Detroit you know, Mercy. Yep. Detroit Mercy. Oh yeah. The one fan that stormed the field or stormed the court after the game was over. Uh, there's a uh, Mississippi uh, Valley won their first game. And I mean, just, you know, they had a, like a group of like 10, 15 people get on the court to celebrate. I I think those are great mem- moments in the sport. I think they're great memories for everyone involved. And I think the idea of, of being a killjoy and trying to throw citations and I think killing a really a great tradition of a collegiate sport. I think it's a cynical and really, I think shows a, a very out of touch individual. <laughs> you know, you made me think of one of the sillier ones, which is the, the silent night tradition with, at that small college. It's Taylor where uh, all the students dress up in costumes and then they're completely silent in the audience until that 10th point is for the, the home team is scored. And then they all just run out. Like going, you know, just completely madness. And I mean, obviously, the other teams know this is coming, but even then, you still watch the video and just see the other team. The, the other players are kind of, 
in almost the panic of being stunned because it's one thing to to say it's going to happen. It's another thing to be in the middle of a game and not really thinking about that 10th point until, you know, thousands of people are running at you in costumes like dressed like bananas or whatever. Um, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, we need we need more of that in football. Could you imagine if if somehow a program managed to because there's too many people. The scale of that would be intense. Um, I still remember, gosh, this is going to be a really old reference, but I remember when the L.A., uh, when, when they were still called the Anaheim Angels, when they were had a playoff run, um, I can't remember if they made it all the way to the World Series or not, but they had the Rally Monkey, and uh, that was a whole big thing about that, that, that um, they were, they were kind of trying to come up with ways to, to celebrate the Rally Monkey even more and kind of take it to the next level, and I thought, just have everyone dress as, you know, in ape costumes so suddenly the stadium looks like you're in the middle of, like, Planet of the Apes. Um, <laughs> with some kind of, I don't know, it, it, we've been going on too late. This is getting into kind of, uh, silly, silly territory for sure. Um, one other thing I wanted to mention, because I, again, I'm, I, I admit I'm definitely not like as hype about the EA sports game as everyone else. I know it's going to be really popular. I hope it, I hope it's as good as people are hoping. Um, obviously they finally had clearly what was a, uh, uh, you know, what do they call it? A, uh, a press, um, Oh, not a boycott, but they, they definitely were holding off on when the news was announced. So suddenly all the news came out late last week about some of the, the names and the teams that are going to be in it. Uh, one of the awkward things is, you know, they announced, oh, they're going to have Chris Fowler, Kirk Hipstreet, Jesse Palmer. Oh, and David Pollock, who is laid off. But clearly, and it's funny, too, it came out when Fowler was talking about, oh, we recorded this two years ago. And then, you know, Pollock was let go and it's kind of becoming more and more uh, eccentric as he's uh, as he's been um, out of the, the the speaking ranks, but he'll also be in the game. But the interesting one is obviously the NIL deals that they're offering players. I think it's what $600 and a copy of the game. I know we talked about it quite a bit uh, last year's offseason, but the interesting part of that is uh, EA, apparently the report is the, the game is going to keep gamers from manually adding the players who did reject the opt-in. So I thought that was a fascinating um, approach. It probably was part of the contract they designed. Um, but that's going to be interesting. So are we going to get like the off-brand versions? I'm, people are going to work out a way. You're just going to spell the name slightly different. You know, um, You know, it, it would be like, oh, gosh, you know. Yeah, exactly. You know, you can just imagine just Caleb Williams. Oh, his name is now Daleb Williams. I mean, because you can't – the last name, can you imagine? Oh, you can't use the na last name Williams. I mean, there's going to be like 100 players that won't be in there. Because, I mean, there's – we're going to see exactly how many thousands of these there are. But I thought that was kind of a fascinating one. My goodness. I'm going to go ahead and slowly wrap this up just because it's been a little over an hour and I try to keep this limited to about an hour in the off season. This was RCFB Talk 183. My name is Bob Akhairi. It's always great talking college football topics with all of you. I wanted to thank our guests. We had some great speakers tonight. A bunch of folks who we've heard from before, and I hope we hear from them again. So on behalf of all of us here at RCFB, thanks for listening, everyone. Now I'm going to hang up and listen. <laughs>